This morning, our message will be drawn from Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 13. These are the words of God. Faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. For the promise that he would be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Our gracious Heavenly Father, open up these great words to us this day. Let us see your salvation through Christ in all of its glory, in all of its grace, and may we overflow with gratitude and joy and strength, all to the glory of your name. Amen. Well, we have paused briefly in our progress through Genesis to focus for a handful of sermons on how the New Testament applies the events of the life of Abraham, which we have recently considered. Our sermon text today in Romans chapter 4 is a perfect example. Paul here is addressing the central indictment brought by the religious leaders of Israel against the gospel of Jesus Christ, which was that if righteousness, that is, if right standing and right relationship with God are available simply on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ, then God has repudiated his promises and his people. You see, to the religious leaders, right standing and right relationship with God came by virtue of one's covenant membership, with one's loyalty to the covenant being gauged by scrupulous adherence to the law of Moses, and especially the ritual and dietary provisions which visibly marked out Jews from non-Jews. To them, basing righteousness simply and solely on faith in Jesus Christ meant that God had suddenly changed everything, casting off the covenant requirements of the past, along with his covenant people formed by adherence to those covenants. Well, Paul and the other apostles had one simple, constant answer to this indictment. Go back and read Genesis, especially God's dealings with Abraham. And that's what we have been doing the last couple of weeks. Last week, we looked at chapter 15 of Genesis, which is the passage Paul is alluding to at the beginning of our sermon text in Romans chapter 4 and verse 9. And last week, when we looked at Genesis 15 in detail, we saw that that chapter is all about the person and work of Jesus Christ, 
the promised seed. In the first part of chapter 15, Abraham is counted righteous by God solely on the basis of faith. And that occurs before God made any covenant with Abraham and before any covenant sign, such as circumcision, had been given. Furthermore, when God does make the covenant with Abraham in the latter part of Genesis 15, he does so alone. In other words, it is not him and Abraham together forming the covenant undertaking obligations. It is God alone who is walking down the path of death between the sacrificial animal parts while Abraham is completely incapacitated. And thus, in this way, God is foreshadowing, he is enacting, as it were, his future sacrificial death on the cross. So Genesis 15 really lays the foundation of righteousness, that is right standing and right relationship with God, solely on the basis of faith in the promised seed. Well, the next place that Paul moves in Romans chapter 4 is to Genesis chapter 17 which is where God makes another covenant with Abraham and this time gives the covenant sign of circumcision. Now, it's important for us to understand, and this is something that Paul in our text in Romans 4, he's assuming that we're going to do the math here from Genesis. This, this second covenant in Genesis 17 came 14 years after Abraham was counted righteous by faith. We know this because Ishmael is 13 years old in Genesis chapter 17. And he had not even been conceived at the time of Genesis chapter 15. So at a minimum, we're talking 13 years plus nine months of pregnancy. And this is Paul's point in Romans 4 verses 9 and 10. If the Genesis 17 covenant with its sign of circumcision do not even come about until 14 years after Abraham is counted righteous by faith, then membership in the covenant and receipt of the covenant sign cannot be essential to salvation. Otherwise, Abraham could not have been declared righteous for all that time. Now, think about it this way. If God, in Genesis chapter 17, suddenly, retroactively, 14 years after the fact, made covenant membership and the covenant sign essential to salvation, then God really would be guilty of what the Jewish leaders were accusing him of changing the basis of salvation and righteous standing with God. But that's not what God is doing in Genesis chapter 17, which raises the question, what is God doing in Genesis chapter 17? And the answer is this. God is creating means for serving 
the salvation which he long ago made available by faith alone in the promise seed alone. God is creating means for serving the salvation which long before he made available by faith alone in the promised seed alone. How long before? Well, we already mentioned 14 years for Abraham, but much longer than that, because it goes back several thousand years to Adam and Eve when God first promised the gospel that the seed of the woman would one day crush the head of the serpent, Genesis 3.15. There is no mention of covenant or covenant sign at that point. So how then is God, through the covenant of Genesis 17, going to create means for serving the salvation which he has already made available by faith? Number one, God in Genesis 17 is formally acknowledging that he saves us to restore us as his sons and daughters. He saves us for a relationship so we can walk with him. He doesn't save us so we can go stand in the corner. He saves us to restore us as his sons and daughters so we can walk with him as his sons and daughters. Genesis 17:1. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God. Walk before me, walk in my presence, and be blameless. Now, the Hebrew word blameless here does not mean in this context sinless or perfect. It means complete in the sense of something becoming what it was created to be. It's the same word that's used of Noah in Genesis 6, verse 6. Noah was a just or a righteous man Perfect, that's our word, complete in his generations. Noah walked with God. So the idea is that God saves us to walk with him and so to become what we were created to be in the beginning. Because God created us to know him and to walk with him and so to become like him by participating in his work in his character, in his kingdom, in his joy, and in his glory. That's what God made us for, and that's what he saved us for. And so we see the same concepts in the New Testament. Take Ephesians 2, verse 8, for example. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, It is the gift of God. Even the faith is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. Here's this concept of walking. And it continues that theme throughout the book. Ephesians 5, verse 1. Therefore... Be imitators of God as dear children. Walk with God and become like Him more and more along the way. That's the idea. Be imitators of God as dear children. Next verse. And walk in love. Verse 8. Walk as children of light. Verse 15. Walk circumspectly, not as fools 
but is wise. Now, we don't walk with God to get saved. We walk with God because we are saved. That is, he has saved us by faith alone in the promised seed alone. The second thing God is doing in the covenant in Genesis 17 is hearkening back to his words to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1.28 when he told them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. This is bringing them to participate in God's work, in God's kingdom, and along the way to become more and more like God himself. We see um, God taking this same language of multiplying and being fruitful in Genesis 17, verse 2. I will make my covenant between me and you. I will multiply you exceedingly. Verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. These are the same words that God repeated to Noah and his sons when they came off the ark in Genesis 9, verse 1. Now, by using this language that goes all the way back to creation before the fall, God is reminding Abraham what is really in view, which is the whole world, not just the land of Canaan. The land of Canaan is real. It really was given, but it was just a type, a preliminary picture of the whole world. That's what explains Paul's language in Romans 4 and verse 13. For the promise that he would be heir of the world, cosmos, was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. See, it's not really about Canaan. It is about Canaan, but it's about the whole world. The rest of Scripture confirms this in many places. Take Psalm 2, verse 7, for example. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. This is the promised seed. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the land of Canaan. That's not what it says. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession. And that's why Jesus tells us to go get the world, all the nations in the Great Commission. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth, he said. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations. By virtue of his resurrection and ascension, all nations, the ends of the earth, are his by right. He is saying to us, take that which is mine by right, and make it mine by heart, by soul. Because the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ is not a military regime imposed on an unwilling world. It is a transformative kingdom brought to a world made willing by the power of the Holy Spirit. The third thing God is doing in the Genesis 17 covenant is reminding Abraham that his promises will not be fulfilled by a normal son born the normal way, but by a special son of promise born miraculously. Genesis 17, verse 16. I will bless Sarah and also give you a son by her. 
Now remember, Sarah has been barren her whole life, and now she is too old. She's past menopause. But God is saying, I will bless Sarah and give you a son by her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Now, there's nothing wrong with Ishmael. He's a normal son, a normal boy. He's been with his father for 13 years. He's Abraham's firstborn son. But once again, these promises will not be filled by a normal son born the normal way, but by a son of promise born miraculously. Abraham here is saying, what about Ishmael? Let him be the promised one. Let him be the heir of the covenant and these promises. And God is absolutely adamant in verse 19. No. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. This will be a miraculous conception and birth. And you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him. Isaac, you see, in his miraculous conception and birth was a picture of the true promised seed who would be miraculously born by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. The fourth thing God is doing in Genesis 17, and this is part of the meaning of circumcision, is showing that neither Abraham nor any other man can beget the promised seed, but only God. Sometimes Christians wonder, why did the covenant sign go just to the males and not to the females as it does in the new covenant? Well, part of the reason is because God is making it clear that neither Abraham nor any other man is capable of begetting the promised seed. That's part of the meaning. Luke 1, verse 35, the angel says to Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Uncircumcision, you see, is a picture of being dead in sins and being a sinner by nature. Being dead in sins and a sinner by nature. Colossians 2.13 You being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with Him, having forgiven you all your trespasses. This concept was made clear in the Old Testament as well. He made it clear that circumcision that was outward only was no true circumcision. He made it clear that an Israelite who was one outwardly only was no true Israelite. That's why he says in Deuteronomy 10:16, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. In Romans 2, verse 28, Paul says, He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, that is, merely outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward, merely outward in the flesh. He is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, 
not in the letter whose praise is not from men, but from God. So we see the Genesis 17 covenant and its sign of circumcision pointed to three things. First of all, it pointed to the promised seed and to faith in him as the only means of righteousness before God. That's what Paul is pointing out in verses 11 and 12 of Romans 4. Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believed, circumcised or not. The second place the Genesis 17 covenant points is to the relationship with God and the calling to walk with him, which is why God created us and saved us. The third thing the Genesis 17 covenant points to is the children God has entrusted to us that we should then bring them up not to the faith, but in the faith. Now you can see here very clearly that the covenant sign going to children, uh, the circumcision went at eight days of age. It's not magic. It's not magic. But it is God's own way of bringing salvation and an eternal relationship with him to the children he has given to us. What this is recognizing is that we do not create these children and then bring them to God. God creates these children and gives them to us. He entrusts them to us. And he says, this is my way. My way is you don't bring them up to the faith. You bring them up in the faith. And that's why he wants the sign placed upon them. So in all these ways, covenant membership, the covenant sign, later on with the Exodus, you will have the covenant law. They were all given by God as servants of the salvation in that they were designed to create the best environment for cultivating faith in Christ a blessed walk with God, and the furtherance of his kingdom. Let me say that again. Covenant membership, the covenant sign, later on the covenant law, were created as servants of salvation. Not means of salvation. Servants of salvation in that they were designed by God to create the best environment for cultivating faith in Christ a blessed walk with God, and the furtherance of his kingdom. So putting all of this together, what we see is this. Number one, Genesis 15, which is all about the person and work of Christ and faith in him, that's the foundation. That's the foundation that supports the entire house which God is building. 1 Corinthians 3.11 No other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.5 You also, you believers, 
as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Again, Jesus is the foundation, which is why Genesis 15 is all about the person and work of Christ. Secondly, Genesis 17, with its covenant membership, the covenant sign, the various covenant privileges, that is built on top of the foundation in order to serve, protect, and promote that foundation. Genesis 15, the promised seed and faith in him, that is the foundation. There is no other foundation. Genesis 17, covenant membership, covenant privileges, covenant sign, that's built on top of the foundation in order to serve, protect, and promote that foundation. Together, they form a single house whose builder is God. So once you've put them together, just like building a house, you have the foundation, then you have the framing on top. Once you put it all together, it's one house. So this is one house whose builder is God. But here's the thing. Even though it's one house, you can still tell the difference between the foundation made of stone, made of concrete, and the framing that is on top. And it's very, very important that we do not get them confused. Because the foundation will support the house. It will support the framing. But if you flip that house and you try to make the framing the foundation and support the foundation up in the air, the house is going to collapse. Or if you think that you don't need a foundation, the framing itself will do. The house is going to collapse. That was the error that we saw with Cain toward Abel. That was the error we saw of Ishmael toward Isaac. That was the error of the religious leaders of Israel toward Jesus in his day. Instead of trusting in the promised seed, they were trusting in their covenant membership and their covenant privileges. Do you see the difference? Your covenant membership and your covenant privileges did not die on the cross for you. Your covenant membership and your covenant privileges did not go into the grave for you. And they did not rise from the dead for you. Nor did they ascend into heaven for you. Nor do they intercede for you. Jesus Christ died on the cross for you and went into the grave and rose and ascended into heaven and intercedes for you. Your trust must be in Christ alone. He is the foundation. There is no other foundation. If you start trusting in your covenant membership, the covenant sign, the various covenant privileges, which are given as great blessings, but they're servants to serve the salvation, which is by faith alone, through Christ alone. If you start trusting in them and trying to make them 
the foundation, you've just turned them into idols. And now you've taken them from being blessings to curses. What all of this means is that faith in Christ the promised seed is requisite to even understanding covenant membership, covenant sign, and the other covenant privileges. You can't even understand them if you don't approach them from the standpoint of faith in Christ the promised seed. If you approach them from the standpoint of Christ alone and salvation by faith alone in him alone, then these blessings, these servants which God gives to serve the salvation, to create the proper environment, the best environment for cultivating faith, for bringing up children in the faith, for propagating the kingdom, all of that will make perfect sense to you and all those things will be a great blessing. But if you do not approach them from the standpoint of salvation by Christ alone, through faith alone, none of these things will make sense for you. You will get them all wrong. You will get them all confused. You will start asking them to do things which they cannot do. You will try to make them the foundation. The house is going to collapse. If you trust in these things, you're making them idols. And instead of blessings... They're going to be a curse to you and your children. You see how it works when we approach it the way that it is laid out for us in Scripture. That's why again and again the apostles keep saying to the religious leaders of Israel, go back and read Genesis. Just go back and read Genesis. Go back and look what God did with Abraham. Abraham was declared righteous with God solely on the basis of faith in the promised seed for 14 years before there was ever any covenant membership, a covenant sign, or anything like that. If you had said to Abraham after God had declared him righteous in Genesis 15, if you'd said, So how how do you feel about covenant membership? He would have said, what covenant? If you said, well, what about about, uh, the covenant sign? He would have said, what covenant sign? If you had said, well, what about the covenant law? He would have said, what law? All those things are blessings, but they're servants. Let them do their job and they will be a blessing to you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.